today we're in Hebrews chapter 2 as we continue on in our study of this book. Hebrews chapter 2 starting with verse 5. And uh, we just came out of this first warning passage. If you weren't with us last week, we'd really encourage you to kind of catch that online. And because to me, I think it's a very important piece. But today we're going to be in verses 5 to 9. This is what it says. For he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere saying, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. If you've not been with us, the heart of the book of Hebrews, and there's a number of, of themes that kind of run throughout the book, but one of the prominent themes and one of the ones that we see uh, very strong in these first chapters is the supremacy of Christ. Jesus is all you need. Right? And in that, as you go back to chapter 1, he is a far greater revelation than the Old Testament scriptures. He is the actual exact representation of God. Right, He is the radiance of his glory. He is the creator because he is God. So he's greater than the Old Testament prophets. Prophets. He's greater than the, uh, the Old Testament revelation of who God is. Then he went into how he is greater than angels. And we talked about how in Judaism, angels were seen as having a very prominent place. They were the ones who were seen as kind of the intermediary between God and man. So they were the ones who brought the law, who often brought the visions, who brought the prophecies, who brought the word of God to man. And so he started back in chapter 2 with this idea that he is greater than the angels. Then we get to chapter 2, verse 1, and all of a sudden we run into this warning. This warning about how it is so important that we pay much closer attention, right, so that we don't drift away. And this warning of how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation and the reminder that our salvation is not just simply about justification, but our, our salvation is about a future salvation where we will inherit and rule and reign with Christ and we will inherit the things to come. In fact, kind of verse 5 now is the transition back to talking about angels when he says, for he did not subject to angels the world to come, which is what we're speaking about. Now, there's a fascinating thought here that I've, I've never seen until studying this week. He's been talking in chapter 1 about how Jesus is far greater than the angels. And then we get into this warning passage. But now he's back talking to angels. And what's interesting is that 
if you actually line them up together, so you take the end of chapter 1 and you, you then move right into verse 5, it's almost a seamless transition. For instance, for to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Now, verse 5, for he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we're... It, it, it's a seamless transition because what he's doing is he's been talking about the superiority of Christ over angels in chapter 1 basically based upon his deity, that he is God. He is the exact representation of who God is. He is the, the radiance of his glory. He is the one who holds all things. He is the one who is the eternal God, right? He is that, in chapter 2 now, as he starts talking about Jesus' superiority to angels, it's going to be about his humanity, that he actually became one of us. And by the way, that's kind of the rightful ruler of this world, not angels. But it reminds us that as we think of through what we talked about last week, verses 1 through 4, in a sense, are almost parenthetical. This warning is almost like the author couldn't get to the end of his idea, his thought, without stopping and reminding us of how important it is that we live for that day, that we don't drift from the truth, that we understand that Jesus is the one who is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is waiting for all things to be put under his feet. We need to live for that day. In the midst of this entire discussion about how he is so much far greater than the angels. And what he does here is he pulls out an Old Testament psalm. It's Psalm 8. And uh, keep your finger here, but I, I want to go back and I want to read Psalm 8 so that we've got context to this. Psalm 8 is it's a psalm of creation. It's a psalm that is not viewed either by Jews in the time of Jesus at the time of this writing or today as a messianic psalm. It's viewed as a, a psalm of praise based upon creation. The idea here is most people look at what David is praising God for and it points back to Genesis chapter 1, that God created all things. And as we read through it, you'll see how he uses uh, the beauty of you know, little babies and how, how God overcomes his enemies and the, the, the heavens and the starry host and, and then his care for man and all of this and bringing this sense of praise together. But it's not viewed as messianic. So let's read it together. So if you're there, Psalm 8. Verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've heard that before, right? Who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength. Because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens... The work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which you have ordained. Now, starting with verse 4 through verse 6 is the part of Psalm 8 the writer of Hebrews is going to take us back to. What is man that you take thought of him? And the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God 
and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the work of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. It is a psalm of praise. It is a psalm about the creation that God has made. It looks to everything from the heavens to little babies, right, to praise the name of God. And, and that's the, the heart of what's going on here. What's interesting is, as I mentioned, this is not viewed, it has never been viewed as a messianic psalm. And yet now, the writer of Hebrews takes verse 4 and 6 out of Psalm 8, and he brings it, and he makes it messianic. He makes it point towards Jesus. And before we go into why he does that and, and what it tells us about the Messiah and about Jesus, can I just remind you that the writer of Hebrews, because he's acting under the inspiration of Scripture— and, or excuse me, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, right? So the Holy Spirit who wrote the Old Testament and knows all those little nuggets that maybe we don't always pick up, he has all the right in the world to be able to do that. You see that with uh, Peter and the apostles in the book of Acts. All of a sudden, they're bringing out stuff out of the Old Testament, primarily Psalms, that, that point towards the Messiah that really had never seen that way before. But here's the thing, they have the ability to do that because they are working, again, under the inspiration of Scripture. We work under the illumination of the Scripture, but we need to be careful about this. In fact, some, if you remember a couple weeks ago, uh, we were looking at that verse in, in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7 that he pulls out in chapter 1. That first part, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. And of course, what, what he was doing was he was attributing that to be in a messianic prophecy about Jesus. And yet in the context, of course, he's talking to David and he's talking about his son, specifically Solomon, who is going to build the temple. And when we showed this verse, I had some people come up and say, well, how could that be speaking about Jesus? Because the next piece is when he commits iniquity. Did Jesus commit iniquity? No. Right? Jesus was perfect. I will correct him. Was Jesus? No, he wasn't. And, and so the point is is that the Holy Spirit knew that just that first part is the part that's going to do. And, and the Holy Spirit who wrote the Old Testament has the ability to do that. You and I need to be careful about doing that. Thank you, Todd. I knew you would appreciate that. Because uh, sometimes we see something and we go, oh man, and, and, and build, and especially when you sometimes get into some of the types of the Old Testament to point ahead, a number of them are mentioned in Scripture, right? So, so those we can kind of go hard into. The other ones, sometimes we need to just hold with a loose hand, right? And be careful that we don't make, and we get to heaven, we may find out, oh yeah, that was that's exactly, the Holy Spirit gave that nugget. And other times... I think the Holy Spirit's just going to shake his head and go, no, I don't know what you were doing with that one. But, uh, uh, but he has the, the ability to do that. So as we're back in Hebrews chapter 2, the writer of Hebrews, under the inspiration of Scripture, pulls out these pieces 
and says, listen, this speaks ahead and it points to Jesus and who he is. Now, as I mentioned, it reads a little different, right, in Hebrews than it does in Psalm 8. The reason is, is the writer of Hebrews is actually quoting it from the Greek Septuagint. So it's a Greek translation. And so like where in Psalm 8, we just read, it says about God's, uh, the Septuagint actually translates that as angels, made them a little lower than angels. You'll also see here in, um, in verse uh, 7, it says, you have made him for a little while lower than the angels. And in, in Psalm 8, in our translation, it's just you have made him a little lower. It's not like a little while. The Greek Septuagint actually is a little while lower, which, of course, now allows us to look and see who Jesus is. The first piece that he kind of pulls out here, though, is there in verse 6. What is man that you are mindful of him, that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? Now, when David used the term son of man, he wasn't thinking messianic in his thought. And yet, that became a messianic term. And if you don't know the back story of that, it's Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, where uh, Daniel has a vision of all the events that are going to play out in this earth, right? The time of the Gentiles and all the coming uh, uh, Gentile world governments. But ultimately, the Messiah comes. And that's where you get in verses 13 and 14. It says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. That is surely talking about the Messiah who's going to come. So that phrase, son of man, took on significance there. When Jesus was here on earth, do you know the number one phrase that he used to speak of himself? Son of man. You go look it up. In the Gospels, it's used over 80 times, mostly by Jesus speaking of himself. The son of man, the son of man. So the writer of Hebrews here takes this and he says, Or the son of man that you were concerned about him. And then he says this, and you have made him, verse 7, for a little while lower than the angels. And what the author is doing, it's taking Psalm 8 and it's using it to speak of the humiliation of Christ. Now, the humiliation of Christ is kind of a theological term. But it's looking at the idea that Jesus, who was God, who was deity, the eternal God, the exact representation of his nature, came to earth, became one of us. It's what uh, Paul speaks of in, in Philippians chapter 2, right? Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God and did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. The idea is there that he didn't see, you know, that he was less than God. He it was not something to be attained. It's who he was. But what he did was he emptied himself, the humiliation of Christ. 
taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point, even death on a cross. The humiliation of Jesus, he emptied himself. The Greek word there is the kenosis, right? And a lot of speculation, a lot of debate as to what that word means. As best as I can understand it, it's not that Jesus became less than God, right? He, to become a man, he didn't, he didn't lay aside his godly attributes. He was still fully God, right? Fully God, fully man. That's what we see back in, in Hebrews chapter 1, the exact representation of his nature. What he laid aside, what he emptied himself of was the right to, to use his deity by his own will. So when you read about Jesus in the gospel, so often what we're told is he did what he did by the power of the Spirit. It was at the direction of the Spirit. And so he voluntarily laid aside so that he could be not only fully God, but fully human. So as the writer of Hebrews is going to go to, that he was in all ways tempted like we were, but without sin. That he's become a high priest who could be touched with the feelings of our infirmity. And that's the idea here in verse 7. For you have made him for a little while lower than the angels. Right? This, this humiliation was not eternal. Though he will forever be the perfect God-man that voluntarily laying aside the right to exercise his power and authority as God was for a short period. It was just for a little while. And now what we read is that in the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, he has been crowned with glory and honor. That's what we're told in verse 9. Because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. So that by the grace of God, he touched death for us all. He is now what? Seated at the right hand of the Father. You go back to chapter 1. We were told that back in what? Verse, uh, verse 3. He is sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. We were told it again later on. Verse 13, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. The, 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 the humiliation, the, the emptying, the laying aside was just for a short while. But now that he's accomplished what he came to do, in essence to restore, and we're going to get into this in a minute, all that was lost and to provide our redemption, he has been crowned with glory and honor. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, waiting for all his enemies to be made as footstools. It's Philippians 2. For this reason also now God has highly exalted him given him a name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of things in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's Lord to the glory of God the Father. And, and, and so we're in this unique situation. In fact, did you see it in verse 8? He says, you have put all things in subjection under his feet, but in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. 
You see, we're living in a time of not yet. And some people struggle with that. Uh, I run into periodically people who have uh, become atheists or agnostics or they're not quite that far. They believe there's a God, but they're mad at God. And often their, their anger, their, their disbelief runs into this idea there's just way too much pain and suffering in this world. And the idea in their mind is, well, if God was really good, then there wouldn't be this pain or suffering. So maybe he's not good, or maybe he is good, but as God, he doesn't have the ability to fix all of this, and so he's not all-powerful, or maybe it's just simply he doesn't exist. And the problem is, is they are down into the weeds and, and dealing with the pain and the hurt, but they don't understand from a biblical perspective what I like to call the arc of history, right? It's that 50,000-foot view of, of all that is going on. And to be honest, to, to be able to understand what's even going on today, right? To understand what's going on in our country, to understand what's going on in the world, you've got to take a step back and look at the arc of history and where we are in this. So the arc of history starts with creation. In fact, that's where Psalm 8 starts, right? How majestic is your name from the mouths of babies to the putting of the stars in space, right? Well, the arc of history started with God making us. And the creation of man was unique. We were made in the image of God. The image of God that we would have a mind to be able to reason, to think, to choose against our own instincts. That we would have a will. That we would have the ability to rule and to subdue. To, to, to be like God, bear his image here on this earth. And so in that image, this is what he did. He subjected the world and all creation to man. God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. That was God's design. He made us to be able to do that. The, the world was to be ruled, subdued by man. He says it again in verse 28. He said, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over it. Everything, the fish, the birds, everything that moves. And oh, by the way, when all this is done, God looks at it and says, it is very good. It was perfect. There's no sickness. There's no death. There's no hate. There's no bigotry. There is no pain. There is no sorrow. There is no disease. It's perfect. The problem is, corruption came in. Man sinned. Man rebelled. Maybe the better way to put it. Man rebelled against God. God said, listen, you can eat of every tree except one. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Oh, by the way, a serpent showed up there. A serpent to whom God had said, rule over the world. Subdue it. Here's part of the creation. Instead of ruling, instead of subduing, instead of saying, get away from here, man listened. Man brought himself under the word and the wisdom of the creation of God. And an interesting thing happened. 
not only did sin come in and our relationship with God is broken, but Satan in that moment usurped man's authority. Man who was to rule and to reign, now Satan comes and man listens to Satan and now Satan becomes. I mean, think about this. You know, I, I was reminded um, of this. Uh, T- Todd got me a, a great commentary by a, a Jewish writer. And even though we, we see this in Christian theology, we don't think about it as much as they do in Judaism. It was a wonderful thought. When Satan usurped man, who became the ruler of this world? Satan, right? He's the god of this age. He is, uh, he's the prince and power of the air. Remember what Jesus said before he went to the cross? Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Do you remember the temptation of Jesus? One of the temptations was Satan takes him up on a high mountain and lets him see in a moment of time all the kingdoms of the world and says, if you'll bow down, I'll give these to you. Jesus doesn't argue with him that he doesn't have the ability to do that. It's just simply you won't tempt the Lord your God. You think of what Paul says. Paul tells us, for we, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it is against principality rulers and against powers and against the world forces of darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. And oh, by the way, if you picked up that book I recommended a couple of weeks ago on angels, elect and evil, he actually goes in and talks about how rulers and, and powers are actually classes of angels that rule. And, and then you go back and you begin to think and go, oh, yeah, remember, remember when the angel showed up to give Daniel the vision? He was, had been held up for three weeks, and he says, because the prince of the of Persia, right? There's a spiritual battle going on. And oh, by the way, I got to get back because the prince of, of Greece is coming, right? There's a spiritual battle going on. And right now, when we look at all this mess that's going on, not only in America, but around the world, can I just remind you that the battle is not flesh and blood. It is a spiritual battle, the prince of the power of the air, the ruler that, that is now, he, again, because we are in this point of not yet. So there's corruption. But then we get to the great part, which is the time of redemption. So there's, there's creation, it's perfect. Corruption comes in, and oh, by the way, if you, you want to figure out how that, just read the book of Genesis. From chapter 3 to chapter 6, you go from man's sin to every thought of their hearts were evil continually. You then continue on as God now starts again with Noah. And you get, you know, you get polygamy and you get rape and you get incest and you get all kinds of, of brokenness, right? Well, Jesus came. The second Adam, right? The first Adam rebelled. The first Adam gave up his rightful place. Jesus came completely fulfilling the will of the Father. He provides redemption, right? This, this is now where the second Adam is, where we were all in the first Adam, and therefore we are all born as sinners. Jesus comes so that we can now be a part of him 
and be placed in him, the one who, who fulfilled all the things that the Father asked him to do because he was perfect. Paul puts it like this in Romans chapter 3, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. You know what that word means? It means God satisfied. God's justice, God's, God's holiness is all satisfied through the blood of Christ. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed, but they had to be atoned for. So Jesus came and atoned for our salvation. He is redemption. This is a time of grace. So in the midst of the brokenness, in the midst of the, of the pain, in the midst of the, the bigotry and the hatred and the inequities and the inequalities and all of these things, there is grace. There can be a relationship with God. There can be a restoration to be reminding us that our salvation is not just about today, but it is also about tomorrow when we will now then eventually rule and reign, which leads us to the last piece, which is not yet. And that's the restoration piece. Jesus will rule and reign, restoring to man what was rightfully his in, in creation. Jesus became a man. Now he is going to set up his kingdom. So when you think prophetically the next big event, now there's some small events that could take place, but the next really big seismic event is the second coming of Jesus. Jesus comes to this earth and he, he, he stamps out sin, right? Uh, Satan who is the prince of this world, is cast into the bottomless pit for a thousand years. The beast and the false prophet are thrown into hell. He establishes his kingdom. The lion will lay down with the lamb. I mean, the curse is gone. Restoration. Here's the thing, folks, that I want you to understand. We all want to get to restoration. But you've got to understand that the day of restoration is not the day of grace. The day of grace is today. The day of restoration is the day of judgment. The judgment of the sheep and the goats. It leads to the judgment of the great white throne. Today is the day of grace. It's the day of redemption. And that's what Jesus came to do. He came to redeem what was lost. Look at verses uh, 8 and 9. You have put all things in subjection under his feet, for in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. By the way, I don't know if you notice, this is actually the first time in the book of Hebrews the humanity of Christ, that he became one of us so that he could restore what was lost, that he actually uses the name Jesus. Namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Jesus came to redeem the created world through his blood. If you're familiar at all with the book of Revelation, you've got to think Revelation 5 here. 
right? The seven-sealed scroll, the seven-sealed book, everything that man had lost. No one's worthy. Nobody fits the criteria to open it. It is lost forever. John weeps hysterically. Then an elder says, don't weep. One has been found from the lion of the tribe of Judah, right? His humanity. He became one of us. He, he fit the perfect criteria. And he says, and I looked and there was a lamb as if it had been slain. And they begin to sing, worthy is the lamb who is able to open the book. He's able to redeem by his blood out of every kindred and tribe and tongue and nation. And what he did was he redeemed us from the power of death. We're going to talk more about that next weekend. Into a relationship with the Father that we can know him. That we can know him in a personal way. That we can look forward to that day when now everything, no longer will an angel, a fallen angel be in charge of this world. But man will be in charge, and not just any man, but the perfect man, Jesus. And you and I get to rule and reign with him. It's not yet. But oh, by the way, that's the day we live for. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And can I just remind you that his redemption is completely of grace. I, I love how he, he throws that in in verse 9. Crown with glory and honor so that by the grace of God he might taste death. And by the way, the tasting of death, the tasting of death, the word there is not the idea of an appetizer. It's not the idea of wine tasting, you know, which, you know, I've seen on TV where they, and then they spit it out. That's not tasting of death. It means appropriating. And oh, by the way, it's not just physical death, but it is spiritual death. He tasted and ate death for us so that we could be free. So that we could have hope, that we could have life, that we could be forgiven. And it is completely and totally by grace. The grace of God. Not because I earn it, not because I deserve it. And if you've not come to Jesus by grace, can I just tell you it's the only way? If you're thinking about the fact that, you know, you're a good person and God's, you know, kind of obligated to give it to you, it doesn't work that way. He's not because you don't measure up and that's okay because neither do I. None of us do. It's the whole reason Jesus had to come and redeem us. We can't redeem ourselves. It's just a gift. Free gift. We receive it by faith.